Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Later on, I'm going to be talking to two of the leaders of the Together for Yes movement about their new book, It's a Yes, which tells the story of how the 8th was repealed. It was written by Alison O'Connor, who will also be joining me. But before that, I am talking to Tanya Sweeney about what is going on in her world. Tanya, you've been spending money you don't have this week (laughs) and I want you to confess all and explain to our listeners what is the new place where people can go and spend money they don't have in. I'm a pretty thing addict. Um, Basically, um, Oliver Bonus, which has already got two branches in Belfast that I'm very acquainted with. Um, I mean, I heard about two months ago that they were uh, going to set up shop in Dublin and that just filled me with serious excitement. And you emailed me and I went, the only, how would you were to know? I went, oh my God, I can't believe it's coming and we both got very excited. Oh gosh, it was desperate and I I went in on Saturday. Saturday it basically opened for the first day. Now, I mean, I happened to be in the area, okay? (laughs) Come on. You liar. I'm invoking the, just happened to be there of defence. But, um, it was absolutely stuffed to the seams. And what happened was... With you, people. With people right. and very beautiful things. Yeah. But it's it ended up being a bit of a conga line. like A bit like when you're in Flying Tiger and you have to kind of go around a, one, a sort of a one-way system. And if you... Or the other back, one on George's Street in Dublin. Sustrainy I can never pronounce green, it. Sustrainy and Green. Something like something that. Like that. Yeah. I think it's something they like... They make you go in a kind of maze that you can't go back do. and you're stuck in there with exactly. all this stuff. Well, that's what happened with, with Oliver Bonas. And right. basically... Um, you know, someone tried to, you know, double back to have a look at a Coke and a candle and everyone was like, stop it. You know, you're ruining the equilibrium of my joyful experience here. Anyway, it was a, a flipping nightmare and I had a buggy. So, but I did manage to drop a few quid. So, uh, Tanya, I, mean, I am a champion. Tell people, I mean, you're going to have to convince people that this is worth a slow conga line through a shop <laughs> on a busy Saturday. What it did is. you buy and what are the beautiful things? So, I, I mean, okay, so... And it's uh, on Exchequer Street, It's on right? Exchequer Street, uh, where Graham's shoes used to be. And where know. I used to get my kids' shoes. I used to have a fish tank. Do they still have the fish tank? I bet Oliver Bonas got rid is of it. Oh, no, it's probably, you probably pay about nine grand for a fancy Oliver Bonas fish tank, I should think. But anyway, the stuff is quite expensive. I mean, you kind of turn over a cup and it's 34 euro and you're like, <laughs> And I don't know if it's the price point that makes you go, well, I need it now. Do you know that kind of I way? I do. It's a very interesting price point where Absolutely. in Tiger you're just kind of going, and look, there's you know, so too much stuff at very cheap, but yeah. something that looks kind of nice, and then it's like, no, but I deserve this very 34 so. euro mug. Yeah, it's very deliberate, and it's funny because I interviewed Ollie. 
uh, Tress. His name isn't Oliver Bonas. Oh, oh you're on friendly. You're on Ollie terms Ollie. with the, uh, with the creator Ollie. of Oliver Bonas. Now that's interesting. <laughs> My God. Um, it was so funny because I saw him in the shop on uh, a couple of days ago and he just, you could just tell it was him. Do you know that kind of way? He was standing in the middle of the store kind of just directing everything and it was, it was great. So we went for coffee and we talked about his, you know, his decision to open the Dublin store and I just said, look, it's, it's really pretty and it's, it's like self-care for me and he went, yes, that's very deliberate. So, I mean, they know what they're doing. They're, they're playing with our minds. Well, they're now, playing with your credit. mind, Tanya, anyway. Oh my, they I have mean, my mind, I'm, absolutely. I'm pretending. I'm also go to the one in Belfast. I'm barred from there from by my family. Oh, like, my dear. partner won't let me in because he just knows the I damage know. that will be done. Yeah. Just give us a couple of examples, though, of things. I mean, you bought so, a, a lamp. I bought, I bought a neon rainbow lamp, which was so cute. Um, that was about 80 quid, I think. Um, I mean, they, I, I just sort of didn't do any maths. I just thought, just hand them over the credit card and don't even listen to the amount. It's just fine, you know. Um, I bought some goblets and I bought some glasses. And I want to go back in and buy a coat that I saw in a really lovely dress. Oh, I need to stop, don't I? I, I think you do. Away. I think you need to keep away. Um, I do. And I feel it's a bit bad dangerous. even talking about it for the people listening because it is kind of, I know some of you will be like us and want to go. And I'm just saying, if you have a glad eye for pretty things Watch yourself. and you don't have much money at the moment and you're trying to get saving up for Christmas, don't go there. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, if you have a good budget for Christmas presents and there's people in your life that you'd like mm. to give lovely things to, mm-hmm. of course, self-gifting is also a big thing totally. at this time of year. Totally. Um, I mean, I just say it's a very, I'd say go to not go on a Saturday as well because it sounds like it's going to be packed. They said it was their biggest opening in any store ever. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely. Now, this is their first one outside of the UK. Do you right. know what I mean? I, I get a sense that, um, Ollie, my bud, has an eye on internationalising the brand. You know, I think it could become an Urban Outfitters or a, an Anthropology, and they're also the similar sort of price points where you go into Anthropology, uh, which there isn't, uh, regrettably, a branch in Dublin. Well, yet. for you, probably it's good thing <laughs> it to be honest, Tanya, that they haven't come here yet. Well, this is it. I, I, I always say I'll be sitting in debtors' prison, but I'll have some lovely stuff in there with me. You know, it'll be great. Like you're there with your neon lamp that probably doesn't totally. give any light at all. It's not <laughs> yeah. even a lamp lamp. It's just a. It just gets an warms the thing. spirit. I don't right. know. Well, that's enough about that. And then, meanwhile, other retail news that we have to bring uh, is that Marie Kondo has disappointed me. Now, people who listen to this podcast already know that Marie Kondo has been in my house. There's a podcast out there if you want to listen. It's it's very good, if, even if I say so myself. So I'm a big fan of Marie Kondo. She came to my house. She sorted out a cupboard. For a while, I lived a little bit in Marie kondo And then, of course, like everyone else. What does that mean, lived a little bit well, Marie just, you know, was a bit more organised. Got rid of loads of stuff that didn't spark joy. Said thank you to the wow. things that went out of my house. So she did help me. But then, with everything in life, Tanya, mm. I do it for a bit and then I can't. That's Same. Not, that's my thing. Totally. But anyway, so big fan of Marie Kondo. Won't have a bad word said against her. And when I was in a meeting the other day, we were talking about stories that have come up. And this story came up that Marie Kondo had come out with a new line of goods to sell people. And everyone was scoffing, oh, oh, the woman who wants to you to get rid of your stuff is now trying to sell Lend you more stuff. stuff. Yeah. But I said, before I'd heard what it was, no, I bet you Marie Kondo is selling the stuff that helps you keep the stuff organised, like the things, the draw dividers and the things that she wants you to do that will help you live the Marie Kondo life. And is that what In she which is ca- No. Oh, it's all tat. No. That's well, it's expensive tat. Like, <laughs> you know, the things to hold your fish slice and your ladle... And oh. a shiatsu stick, oh, whatever the what hell that is. that is. And Marie Kondo is basically trying to do a bit of a goop in sort of selling oh, all this goop stuff. Is a bad word. And, and now, now, in her defence, she's saying, well, look, 
you know, if you have to, you have to have a thing that holds all your utensils, uh-huh. right? Why not make it a beautiful one for three hundred euro? It's well, not three hundred. Now I'm not euro. saying it's three hundred euro, but I did have a bit of a, you know, a harsh tack when I saw some of the prices. Oh my god! It's expensive and it's very beautiful, but. Really? Well, I'm going to invoke the the I'm going to defend Marie Kondo for one second. There's something quite ephemeral, I should think, about the Marie Kondo moment. You know, I mean, it was a very, very hot thing, you know, last year. It's going to become outmoded. I think maximalism will probably end up having a comeback. This woman is obviously making hay while the sun shines. And, you know, why not make a few quid on a fish slice thing? I Mm, I don't even know what that is. Or a shiatsu No, a ut- utensil holder, I should oh, say. Oh, utensil yeah. holder. Yeah, right, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, if I were her, I would absolutely be taking those opportunities and going with it. I mean, like you say, she, she has a job on her hands now trying to defend her original kind of philosophy, which is, you know, uh, yeah. ch- chuck out the stuff that you don't need and, and keep it minimalist. Now, but... she did say it was all about sparking joy. So she's saying, if she, her thing is everything in your house, when you look at it, should be making you feel good. There shouldn't be anything in your house that's just functional, that doesn't feel, also isn't lovely. And and there is that, everything should be either functional or beautiful, isn't it? There's a saying like that. And what does the stuff, I mean, I'd love to know what the condo stuff looks like. I mean, does it look yeah, very it's pretty? Really, it's very, well, it's nice if you're into that kind of thing. I'm not sure if it would spark joy with you. I don't know if it's got enough pink and neon <laughs> in it, to yeah. be honest. There's a plenty of gold, but it's more that brass and concrete. And oh, wow. They're very kind of, you know, they're not for me, to be honest, because it's too posh looking almost. Right. Like, I, I'm a bit like you, I think. I need to have a little bit of low, yeah, my house lowest like a common denominator. That's My stairs are painted multicolored. Like that, you that's yeah. what you're dealing with here. Okay. Now, so Mary Kondo, I don't know. I'll, I'll reserve judgment then maybe. And go and every listener can go and have a look at the stuff and see whether they think it's worth it. I wanted to talk to you also this week about Prince Andrew. Now, I mean, Prince Andrew, I watched this interview. I have to say... It is so entertaining, but I mean, I, I think we've all forgotten as well, or we had forgotten on Saturday night, at the, you know, that this is a very serious allegation, very serious offences. There are, you know, numerous victims behind all of this. And he seems to have forgotten that anyway. Well, exactly. It's it's a really interesting one because, you know, I was watching it now almost from behind the sofa. I mean, it was t- beyond cringeworthy. And I was keeping an eye on Twitter and the memes were coming thick and fast. I could barely keep up. Now, had it been any other sort of situation, it would have been a a great Saturday night. But like I say, you cannot really get too far from the fact that, you know, there are there are, you know, trafficked underage girls at the heart of all of this. Um, It was a PR absolute disaster. Oddly enough, he seems to think it was a success. But his PR advisor resigned, didn't he? That's right. The week of. um, Now, like I think what's happening now in the press, I mean, it is the gift that keeps on giving as as a news story. Everyone is just trying to blame everybody. So even uh, Sarah Ferguson got brought into the fray yesterday. Now, the latest this morning is that the Queen has now kind of put him on gardening leave. And um, he has been kind of stripped of his royal duties mm-hmm. and his 250,000 a year kind of uh, paycheck, which is, um, you know, grand. But uh, he was allowed to put out his own statement. And finally, he did actually acknowledge the fact that there are, you know, Epstein had victims. And I'll read it out to you, actually. Um, so this is what he wrote. He wrote, It has become clear to me over the last few days that the circumstances relating to my former association with Jeffrey Epstein has become a major disruption to my family's work and the valuable work going on in the many organisations and charities that I am proud to support. Therefore, I have asked Her Majesty if I may step back from public duties for the foreseeable future and she has given her permission. I continue to unequivocally regret my ill-judged association with Jeffrey Epstein. 
His suicide has left many unanswered questions, particularly for his victims. And I deeply sympathise with everyone who has been affected and wants some form of closure. Now, I mean, it's a little bit sort of too little, too late. I mean, because basically for anyone who didn't, hasn't been following the interview, tell about what what was the cringiest bits. Oh, God in heaven. Where to even begin? I mean... I mean, he said he didn't regret his friendship with Epstein because he introduced him to some terrific people. Yeah, and he was it was financially he's sort of deaf, opportunistic. He seems oh, to be. He's, he's, a, he's not the bright. I mean, he's never been known as the brightest mm. bulb. And even before now, like he was Air Miles Andy, he was Randy Andy. Like he was always the, the sort of royal hanger on. And it's a really interesting thing, the the air and the spare. And we're seeing it with... Um, you know, Wills and Harry, I suppose. And I mean, it's a mad coincidence that The Crown came out on the same weekend. And the second episode of that was about Margaret being the the spare. It's all just a weird, you know, sort of um, synchronicity, you know. But with Andrew, um, you know, he he just came across as completely tone deaf. I mean, the big kind of takeaway was um, I was at a Pizza Express in Woking on the day that that uh, woman has alleged that I had sex with her. I've ne- and he, he, he kept seventeen saying, year old seventeen year old uh, girl who um, alleges that she was trafficked uh, uh, via Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, who was a friend of, of who Prince has Andrews. not been heard of and is in hiding. I know. Something. Well, I guess wouldn't you be? You it's know, it's amazing that you can be in hiding in this day and age, though. I, I suppose if you've enough money, I, I think so. Yeah, there's definitely forces at play keeping people, you know, uh, in certain niches, shall we say. But, um, I mean, he did say that. And, I mean, somebody tweeted earlier, you know, I remember when I worked in Harvester and someone from Wizard came in 25 years ago. How does nobody remember a member of the royal family coming into Pizza Express and Woking? The other thing that he said, which, of course, I mean, the the memes were just absolutely flying. Um, I don't sweat on account of an adrenal condition that I picked up in the Falklands War. So that was a strange sort of um, uh, excuse. I don't really know. I think the, the, the woman alleged that he had sweated quite a lot during um, their encounter, shall we say. And he was like, well, I don't sweat. So that's obviously a big lie. Um, I mean, and then he, like Emily Maitlis did such a fantastic job of of kind of, you know, being professional. And I mean, she just kept kind of repeating the same kind of things over to him and, and basically giving him, I wouldn't say enough rope to hang himself, but definitely l- letting him kind of fumble over the the, the facts mm. himself. You know what I mean? It was actually a very composed interview and uh, she she kind of, you know, had a, a, a minor slip in composure when he said that um, Epstein was unbecoming and she went, unbecoming? He was a sex offender. And Andrew went, well, yeah. <laughs> and it just, I mean, it, it was just an absolute car crash from beginning to end, really, mm. you know. So um, it's it's a story that's not going to die down anytime soon, to be no. honest. And as you said at the beginning, it affects so many young women um, yeah. that are looking for justice and looking to get this through the courts. And now the person, the key person is dead, whether he killed himself yeah. or, or other, um, other, or died by other methods, we don't really mm. know. That seems to be being investigated Absolutely, as well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, thanks for telling us about that and writing about it in the Irish Times this week. Finally, I just wanted to mention another very big story this week um, relating to one particular woman. The family of the brain-dead pregnant mother of two who was kept on life support for almost four weeks due to concerns about the Eighth Amendment received an apology this week from the hospital and the HSE at the High Court. Um, Her name was Natasha Perry. And for all those times when we knew about the story, Tanya, we didn't know her name. And it's amazing to see her beautiful face um, and to hear the real story about her um, because it was just such a horrific... um, 
thing for that family to go through and obviously for Natasha herself who died Mm -hmm. and because of the Eighth Amendment and it was really one of those stories that made us all, if we weren't already, realising the damage that it did to to women and to girls. I mean, her daughter is now 11 and she was described in a recent psychological assessment as a sad child who, when asked what she would ask for if she had three wishes, said, I want my mum back. I know, that's just horrendous. Um, So I suppose for the family there's some sort of closure with that uh, apology you know, but at the same time, her father, Peter, you know, there in the papers this week, holding pictures of her. It's just, it's unbelievable. And I think we just never can forget it because, mm-hmm. as we know, these rights that are given to us are so easily rolled back. You look at America, but these are the reasons. Um, and Savita and all those other stories Absolutely. why we can't afford not to be vigilant. But I just thought I wanted to mention her name was Natasha Perry and she deserved far, far better than the treatment she got because of the Eighth Amendment. So thank you, Tanya, for coming in. Um, and I hope you'll come in again maybe before Christmas is out. But I'm just going to say, don't go back to Oliver Bonus. <laughs> I will try not to. Tiger, flying tiger, like you can buy things for much cheaper, but they still give you joy. This is true. Yeah. Thanks okay. for that. So you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, May 25th, 2018 was a monumental day for Ireland. On that day, 66.4% of voters repealed the Eighth Amendment and voted to allow for access to abortion services in Ireland. But how did we get to that point? Early research shows that prior to 2012, the Irish just weren't speaking about abortion. Well, on today's episode, we'll be chatting to the women who were pivotal in leading the nation towards that all-important yes vote, the women behind the Together for Yes campaign. Their story is the focus of a brand new book. It's called It's a Yes, and it details how three feminists from three different generations established a grassroots, women-led social movement that changed Ireland forever and for the better. Joining me in studio will be the co-directors of the Together for Yes campaign, Alva Smith, who's been on the show many times, as has Orla O'Connor and journalist Alison O'Connor. Together with Gronya Griffin, they put together this book for anyone interested in learning about the movement which put Irish women first. So thank you to the three of you, because I know you're all very busy for coming in to talk about it. Alison, I'm going to come to you first. When you got this task... Did you realise or did you think it was going to be daunting or did you think it was going to be easy? How did it turn out for you? Well, How it was, was it for it you, was, Well, looking back now, it seems like longer ago, but it's actually less than a year ago since Alva rang me and said that she was, did I know of a journalist who would? <laughs> She's so clever. Indeed. Uh, and she's since confirmed that. And actually, naively at the time, I really did think she was wondering if I had a suggestion. And um, I, I just immediately appealed to me because, first of all, I thought that uh, Alva and Orla and Grania had done a superb job in, um, first of all, organising the campaign um, and then, crucially, keeping the campaign together. So many diverse groups, so many different sort of feelings within that group, the, the various groups of how people wanted to go about it, what the end product they wanted, you know, how they wanted that expressed. So, I mean, it was a mammoth task. And then to have, you know, that it was a campaign that was uh, literally grassroots all over the country and that we never heard. And this was the other issue, big issue for me, why I wanted to write the book was I felt that such an incredible um, thing to have done 
and to have brought Ireland to that place. And I felt that it just wasn't fully acknowledged. You know, what a what a result that it was. And I did feel that that was because it was a female-led campaign. So that's why I really thought that the, the story, uh, that story uh, deserved to be written in a in a book. That's a big statement that because it was a female-led yeah. campaign. Do you, did you, through the course of this, kind of get evidence of that? A, a feeling that you had, was it kind of compounded by what people had told you? Well, I suppose it was, while I was nearly in the middle of writing it, that was in some ways confirmed in that... Uh, the three women got on the time uh, people of the year list last May and it barely caused a ripple which I thought caused a ripple here on the women's podcast yeah indeed it did yeah you know (laughs) and it was fairly phenomenal and I guess during the campaign uh, there was a a lot of talk and I think we'd let Orla and Alva uh, address this themselves in terms of, uh, I think, what they felt was particularly maybe politically based journalists who were more, you know, based in Leinster House and talking to politicians, this sense that uh, where was this campaign going? Where was the leadership? Because this is, and this is what's intriguing in the book and which we which we really get into, is that that because it was a women-led campaign, the approach was very different. And there was a lot of doubting around that approach and how can this possibly work and how can it be successful and the whole thing is going to be thrown away when in fact it was a phenomenal success. Alva, I'm going to come to you on that just while we're on the subject. There's a, there is a good piece in the in the book um, about how the fact, I think the quote is from Gronia perhaps, um, who isn't here, but people didn't like that there wasn't one leader, um, no charismatic man. Instead, there was these three bright, articulate, passionate women and that just wasn't, didn't compute almost. Tell us about that as part of, in the thick of the campaign. Well, I, I think what Alison was saying is really very true that uh, there hadn't been a campaign which was led by um, even two or three women. So this this notion that you didn't have to have just one single individual leading a campaign was very new in the Irish political framework. And to have three women doing it, of course, was kind of triple whammy. Um, and I think, so I think that took people aback. My own experience was absolutely, as Alison describes, that nobody ever said to me explicitly, three women can't run a campaign. But it was really, I, I encountered a lot of scepticism, um, cynical remarks occasionally, uh, dismissal when I would explain our strategy. I'm just thinking of the very, very, very early days of Together for Yes, really. Oh, well, do you really think that'll work? Or why would you think this will work? And um, how how is the campaign managed? And questions of this kind. And you're... Uh, you know, you had to answer those questions, but it was there and it always came from men. And the very interesting thing about that time, 100 most influential people in the world, 2019. <laughs> Say it again. For the three <laughs> of us, was um, a number of men very nicely and warmly congratulated me, as I'm sure they did Orla and Gronia as well. And each and every single one of them all along the line said, it's lovely to see you on the list of the the world's 100 best women or most influential <gasps> women. And I would simply stand there and say, not women. And they would say, sorry, what? And I would say, not women, people, people, most influential people. If I'm getting hot under the collar about this now on the podcast is because I remained polite and courteous throughout. (laughs) But I can give full vent now to my ire that that absolute incapacity of the male political milieu 
to really see a group of women as a powerful force in our political system. And I think if there's one other thing that this campaign did, it was absolutely to demonstrate that not only in leadership, nationally, but in leadership locally, regionally, mm. in mobilising on the ground, these huge cohorts of women, young women, yes, but women, frankly, of my age as well. And I am absolutely not young. So it's called old, actually. But, you know, it's like... <laughs> older, it, older. Old. Because everyone's old, older No, no, they said the other day Did somewhere they? over 70 is now officially okay, old. sorry. So... Sorry, we could have that debate another time. My point is that that capacity to understand that major political moves and decisions can be and are being driven by women is a lesson which I think not only Ireland but many other countries can usefully learn. That we're not only capable of doing it, that we are very determined, very committed, extremely able. We have young generations there who are able to the 100th degree. Brilliant. And coming from the National Women's Council, or I mean, you must be agreeing, I presume you agree with probably pretty much most Absolutely. of what Alva says. Yeah, and I think as well, because not alone do they not get the women leadership bit, but they also didn't really understand the notion of collective leadership, the fact that three people could do it together. Yeah. And, you know, I know one of the things that we were often asked, you know, asked about all the fights and all the disagreements and stuff because there was a sense of, well, this really isn't going to work, the three of you, is it? And and in some ways, you know, what we did at a national level was what was happening around the country in terms of that collective leadership. And I don't think we get that at all in terms of talking about leadership. Like in the work that we do with young women in the Women's Council and we talk about leadership, immediately people go to one person, generally a man, but it is always the one. And the so the idea of collective leadership isn't understood, certainly not wasn't understood by journalists, but generally, I think, in society. So I think we really did break the mould oh, yes. in terms of, in in many ways, I think, in the Together for Yes campaign. Mm. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's one of the points when the, the, when the three of them spoke to me about the book, that's one of the things that, that was very important, that for people coming up, other people, even in other countries, um, possibly doing a similar sort of a socially based uh, campaign that they could look at this as a handbook because I mean it wasn't um, I mean one of the things for me looking back was um, first of all how difficult it was for us as a society um, I think it was uh, everyone made the point that you could hardly mention the word abortion uh, prior to uh, Savita's death you know in, in, in polite polite society and um, and this this whole notion of the, the work that was put in in the years previous previous to, to the referendum in getting the groups together also getting, trying to get politicians on board. And one of the things that impressed me most about the preparation, about what went on, was how solid, if you like, the science and the research was behind it um, in terms of working out a way to talk to the Irish people at a level that the Irish people were at and in a way that they that the there was very poor. The research showed, you know, what sort of poor understanding there was of the issue, and also how reluctant people were to were to talk about that. And um, the other thing then, and I think Orla and Alva will get into this, and that I found really impressive was the science, if you like, around even just this door to door canvassing, which was a huge operation all over the country. Alva just mentioned, you know, all the the young people I went up through the generations, but how all that information was fed back to headquarters 
in Dublin each night um, in terms of the doors knocked, the responses given. And there was a very sophisticated, if you like, simple but sophisticated, another way, a piece of software, which actually fairly well tracked the result before the result was ever known. Tell us yeah, about that, Alva. I mean, it is fascinating how you... I mean, and was that a new thing or did you learn from the marriage referendum? Well, the, the ways in which we tried, we learned a great deal from the, the marriage equality referendum. But I think that the system that was put in place, um, because because technology develops all the time, was actually very sophisticated. And it was both technological, but also one-to-one and personal, so that there was staff in headquarters who were also um, trying as far as possible to both give support, but also take back the information from the canvas. And interestingly, in the latter few weeks of the campaign, I see Orla's nodding here, we, you know, we we almost didn't trust the feed we were getting back from the canvas because it was very positive. And that was really only within the last say three to last two weeks mm-hmm. of the campaign yeah. and you were always very nervous at that point so it was actually quite difficult for us to believe that mm-hmm. uh, we, we needed to keep people out there to get people out to vote and so on but in fact that feed proved to be very accurate but I mean I would go back a couple of steps and say that we did that research we commissioned that research that started really at the end of 2016 but that what maybe I think a lot of people looking at the campaign Um, together for yes, don't see, is that that whole process actually goes back years before so that we were making strategic decision in our different organisations and also collectively and collaboratively um, that we needed a proactive strategy. We needed on this issue to take the initiative that in previous campaigns uh, for abortion, we were in a reactive situation. So way back after the death of Savita, um, we knew 2012, we knew that we needed to seize the initiative on this and to actually make a demand. People now call it an ask. It wasn't an ask. (laughs) It was a very clear demand. And that demand was made by, for example, the National Women's Council um, issued a policy, developed a policy uh, paper. The abortion rights campaign were out there marching from 2012 onwards. The coalition formed Mm. in 2013. And we were really clear that we were setting the terms of this demand. And in order to set the terms of the demand, we had to know what people's fears and reservations and difficulties were. And that meant that we had to do research, which meant that we had to find money and and so on. It's great to put all those pieces together. I think Mm -hmm. that's what's brilliant about the book, because um, although it is about Together for Yes and that campaign, it really just encapsulates the whole, the context of the issue. I mean, I love that you go back, Alison, to Mary Holland, back to 83, when she spoke about her abortion. And then even in 92, when she said, could some young women please start talking about their abortions because I need yeah. to want to sort out Northern funny, Ireland which yeah, would be easier. Roshan, it's funny this. because this is what I was thinking on the way in here. I was in a slightly sucky up way given that we were coming into the <laughs> Irish Times women's podcast. But the importance actually of the Irish Times yeah. and that's very mm. funny to see that mm. Mary Holland uh, is saying again in 95 where she said, look, you know, could somebody else take up this mantle? Yes. It's actually easier yeah. for me to sort out the North than, than yeah. abortion. And then that in, in uh, 2012, you had the initiative by Cathy Sheridan, yeah. where she yes. invited women to come and yeah. speak about their... And I only talked to Cathy about this a few weeks ago, actually. Mm. And she remembered, and I mentioned this, she remembered that um, all the women were worried about 
at that time was that their identity, they were terrified, yeah. their yeah. identity. I mean, that was the landscape that was there. Then you have Kitty Holland, Mary's daughter, uh, breaking the story about Savita, your own contribution in writing about your own abortion. So, I mean, all of that. I mean, the when Alva speaks about the research there, I mean, it was so striking that... People who took part in the focus groups felt that it was just this battleground that was conducted in the media. You were terrified to open your mouth um, and that then and not only were you terrified to open your mouth, you didn't have words to put on it. If you did, you didn't know where people stood. And even if you wanted to talk about it, you didn't know how to. And yet at the heart of it all, there was a compassion there on the part of the Irish people who felt um, we're not comfortable with this. We're not comfortable with what can happen. Somebody like Savita. And um, we need to find a, a way needs to be found out out of that. And that is one of the most impressive things for me with the campaign, with how Together for Yes um, took that information on board and, and worked with it. And I suppose as well, we have to mention the Citizens Assembly, which is also a very oh, key part yeah. of the book yes, and, yeah. and had mm-hmm. such a big, I mean, Enda Kenny. Who knew, you know, his decision and some people saw it as kicking the can down the yeah, road. Absolutely. Well, yeah. he did actually I'm, say, I'm, sorry, Orla, but he, he had actually said that um, basically it needed more consideration, more thought that he wasn't ready for it. I forget the exact words, um, but he was very reluctant to do anything about it. So I think it's not incorrect, Roisin, to say that he put the Citizens' Assembly in place there as a mechanism to distance himself and government from any ultimate decision. So, you know, I, I would be very clear-eyed about that and not have a problem <laughs> okay. in saying that. But it was very important. Yeah, and I mean, I we say in the book, I mean, I think all of us were so sceptical of it for, for that very reason. But, I mean, I you know, I think you're absolutely right in what you say, Alva, because there is no way that any of... <laughs> the political parties, the leaders expected the Citizens' Assembly to do what it did. And I mean, even I would say I, I, I didn't expect it either in terms of being the process that it was and then to come with the recommendations and the strength of them. Um, and it was an amazing experience in some ways, being there and just seeing people once they got the facts and the information, put women's needs right at the centre. I mean, it was... It, it, I like I know at the end of it we had this sort of press conference and I mean I was I remember being quite emotional at the press conference because it was one of those moments where you thought wow you know people are so far ahead of of our leadership but at the same time I, I think that what you say is absolutely right but it did not drop out of the blue no, sky yeah. I mean there was a huge amount of work done by mm. the key organisations I mean those of us around the table here those of us who went on to form Together for Yes and mm. also organisations like the ICCL mm-hmm. Amnesty USI Terminations for Medical Reasons Parents for Choice um, Akidwa Merd mm. all of those organisations um, and we really pushed very hard mm. certainly the coalition did the National Women's Council we pushed an arc we pushed really hard to get people to make submissions because at one stage there was something like was it 11,000 submissions yeah. from the other side yeah. and it turned out that they were kind of half page letters I remember going through them spending weeks going through these submissions and we actually got people to to make the submissions we interacted absolutely uh, with the um, the officials uh, in the assembly who were very helpful and very supportive. The whole thing about having women bear witness, yeah. that was not on the agenda okay. 
Uh, we were mm. pushing that. Yeah. So, you know, a citizens' assembly, in a way... It doesn't just happen. It, it doesn't oh, have to be very and carefully there is now an expectation by, yeah. that you have a citizens' assembly and the citizens fall into line. Yeah. Right. We were mm. working strategically... Around it, yeah. Uh, ...in relation to that. But that mm. being said, I mean, one of the funniest things in the citizens' assembly was that by about, what, week three or four... Um, you'd be out there and you weren't allowed to consort with the citizens. Okay. I mean, we were citizens, but you weren't allowed to touch the 99. them, yeah, exactly. go in their coffee queue or anything. And I said to myself, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way here. And I thought, hmm, the breaks, they have breaks. I do the golf club thing. So I would flit into the women's loo and I just listen to the conversations. So maybe week three, week four, they'd ignore me. By week five, they were smiling. And I'm telling you, then they were saying, Thumbs up here. We got it. Yeah. We're on this. We're on the case. So that they were beginning to... Now, of course, there was no consorting. Oh, this was all course. done by Absolutely. sign language. <laughs> and I think, Orla, you've seen similarly a similar process almost with the Iraq This Committee, because even when it came yeah. to that, didn't it? Yes. There was no guarantee. Absolutely. I mean, what changed, though, was going into the Iraq This Committee. Now, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't only the campaigners or the activists. It was about the citizens. So it just changed the landscape mm in the Iraq This Committee completely. And I think it gave the freedom for people in some of the parties, I would say, particularly in, you know, in Fianna Fáil, where, you know, it gave them the freedom to say, actually, yeah, I, I agree with this. So it, it, yeah, the Citizens' Assembly really, I think, changed what, mm. what happened politically after and was really key. What I find really interesting reading the book is then, because the Citizens' Assembly and then, say, the amnesty research that came out qu- quite soon after, asking the same thing that the Citizens' the Assembly poll, had asked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 60%, yeah, sorry, the yeah. opinion poll, which had asked the same question and it was 60%. And so, reading it, there is, a, I mean, hindsight is wonderful and we know what <laughs> happened and the result is great, but it's really as if, and there was some of us felt it at the time, that we were where the Citizens' Assembly was, you know, that we were that far along down the road. You just expressed surprise there, Orla, that they were so ahead, or you know, the populace, and those 99 anyway. So, well, ahead I'm really of our inter- political leaders. Well, definitely yeah. ahead of our political leaders, yeah. but more with you is what I'm saying, with, with mm. the people who felt that this was really urgently needed to be sorted out and they were, they were, they were not back in the dark ages, say, Absolutely. that we kind of thought. Mm. And yet, when it comes to the messaging of the campaign, in a way, for me, it looked from the outside and even reading that it wasn't going with that idea. It was more going back to that safe, worried space that Mary and Joe, Dana Mullingar, were going to be freaking out at the idea of abortion for any other reason than fatal fetal abnormality or rape. Those people were OK, but the ordinary people like, say, me and Tara and other people had abortions. We weren't to be sort of trusted. Yeah. But I see a nod in your head there. I just think for you me, see, that's what really comes out of the book because yeah. of these two different things. You see, I think one of the things was, and I think a lot of people looking back in hindsight, what the experience was, and it was even the experience on the doors of canvassers, was that people changed their minds. Yeah, I mean, they did flip up. So, so yeah, they were, you know, comfortable with abortion on the one hand, but then on the other hand, they weren't. So, so people would be in, uh, same person could be in different places at different times. And we were seeing that coming through in the research. We knew that in the Women's Council from the conversations we were having around the country. So, and then, you, you know, I suppose more of the research did show us there was a block in the middle that could be persuaded either way. So, the campaign was very much about speaking to those people and ensuring that on the 25th they will be mobilised enough because also there's one thing about feeling OK about repealing the 8th was another thing going out to vote for it. Yeah. So, and the campaign had to bring, you know, had to bring people to that place. So, I mean, I yeah. Think, I think um, 
what we did, and at that stage, of course, we weren't together for yes, because that didn't form until the February of, of 2018. I mean, I think what we felt on while we were doing the research and recognising that people did have ethical or moral concerns. And that's not surprising. They had been educated, schooled like we all were, to see abortion as a mortal sin and as evil and as murder and so on and so forth. So while people were very increasingly clear that the Eighth Amendment was a cruelty to women and damaged women, at the same time, they had this very strong moral base and therefore they were very uneasy, they were very caught in that, they were very conflicted in that. And I think while we thought of the, the centre as being kind of that concerned centre, they were also conflicted. And they, while they knew the eighth had to go, I think that that's true, they knew it had to go, they wanted to know how it was going to go and what would happen in its place. And that was where we had to do the work of discussing, really conversing, talking with them about what would happen when the eighth went. And that released them and enabled them then to say yes. Because, I mean, I think if we had had a referendum in 2016 or in 2017, we absolutely would not have won that. People wouldn't have gone out to vote. They would have done what they always did until then, which was to stick their heads in the sand. And what we did was to say, Let's get the heads out of the sand. Let's mm. actually have a national conversation yeah. about this. And let's look at what's really going on. Let's be really truthful and honest about this, which was really what the research was saying to us. So, well, I mean, it's at- inter- very interesting that the RT exit poll afterwards said that, found that like up to 82% had indicated that in essence they decided long before yeah. the campaign, even before the Citizens' Assembly, the Oireachtas <laughs> Committee, yes. or indeed Savita's death. Now, that to me is is not plausible. Well, you think they're lying? No, I think the answer no. is very plausible. I think the answer is very human. Right. I think that once people had um, come along the road and once they had voted yes and felt happy, I think it's very human I know to what think. You mean. I always I've, I've felt been, that way. I've always felt that way. <laughs> I almost firmly, pat yourself on the back. Yeah, they yeah. wanted to solve yeah. the problem. Yeah. yeah. And they had government after government yeah. after government that had absolutely not just failed but had point blank refused to even tackle the problem. So it required a bunch of women basically to come along <laughs> a huge bunch, bunches and bunches and bunches of women all around the country to come along and say this problem is not going away it is a huge problem, it has got to be resolved and we are not going away until the people are asked a direct question because if you think back to 2002 and 1992, there were no direct questions asked of us then. So it required, and there was no political leader who had the courage, quite honestly, right along the years, nobody had the courage to do that. Nobody. But one of the, the it's also very interesting, is the this idea, and again it comes back to the whole thing of it was a female-led campaign, and yet those females did recognise that what people wanted to hear from a lot were doctors, including a number of male doctors. And doctors were actually in gynecologists and obstetricians were magnificent in this. But again, I saw that as a very kind of selfless, if you like, um, and uh, putting your ego aside and deciding this is what needs to be done if we are going to win this campaign. And that is what was done. Well, I, I said right at 
Now, how very long the campaign, I said it's quite clear that doctors are the new priests, that yeah. people believed yeah. the doctors. But I think emotionally, of course, what Carrie did, the doctors gave the medical health, uh, gave a kind of moral permission, a sort of moral and ethical permission. But actually, of course, it was the stories like yourself so bravely then, Roisin, like Tara, way back, Tara Flynn, way back when, like the, the women from Terminations for Medical Reasons back with Cathy and, and others in 20, 2012, actually. And then the hundreds and hundreds of women and, and couples as well who told their stories. That was what opened it up for the people of And the Ireland. media carrying, actually, the media. I mean, if you compare, we'll say, even the Brexit referendum, compared to how our abortion referendum went here and the level of engagement there was with people um, and to my mind, in lots of ways, how well the media performed in terms of airing those stories. You also had the issue of balance so that it was both. You can, you could, We could have a whole other discussion <laughs> on, on the regulations surrounding that. But that no one could have said uh, on that Saturday... Uh, when the vote came in, that this had not been a very, very well discussed issue in Ireland and that people were very educated in exactly what was happening and what we were going to end up with. But in terms of the messaging from Together for Yes, one criticism might be that it was a more narrow um, story that was being told and you might not agree, Elvin, you're looking at me there, but maybe not. not But there was things... No, you weren't. That's good, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) No, just more that, um, like maybe the stories of mine and Tara's and other people who... The the 85, I think, percent of people who have abortions for the reasons that they just don't want to become parents um, weren't really the ones that you wanted to put front and centre, that that the other ones were going to be more effective. And how did you, as a sort of quite a radical person, Alva pro-choice lesbian person who has always been fighting. Um, it, was it hard to kind of agree and have to condense this into this very, I would say, maybe safe, safe messaging that you felt was going to get it over the line? Was that difficult for you? Well, I think, you know, these were conversations that we had been having really over the years since, mm. really since the death of, of Savita. And therefore, these were not decisions that suddenly got made at the beginning of the Together for Yes uh, campaign. I mean, this was something which had been really developing all along. And it was very clear um, I mean, I I don't speak for anybody else on this, but it was certainly very clear to me that we had, if we wanted to repeal the Eighth Amendment, that we couldn't do it simply as pro-choice and feminist organisations, that we couldn't do it simply as radicals, that we needed the country to come together to make an agreement. And of course, the country, the people, is composed of all sorts. And quite rightly, it's a democracy. People have all kinds of views. But that it was really important for us in campaigning mode to campaign in such a way that everybody felt they were being addressed, that everybody felt they could participate in the conversation, that everybody felt that as soon as the radio came on, they weren't going to turn it off because it was all going to be fighting and shouting, which had been what was happening. And we also knew that it was really important for people to understand what women were going through. And the simple fact of the matter is that in the first instance, it was couples, terminations for medical reasons, who actually started publicly telling their stories. So in a way, we built on that. But there was, I don't think, Orla, I don't, there wasn't a moment when we sat down and had an ideological 
discussion about that. But was there more yeah. like say even in the messaging was there an idea of these people in Mullingar going back to them? What would they like it? Would, they, would it frighten the horses down there and maybe the things that would have maybe they wouldn't have frightened the horses. Is yes. there a... Yes, I think there was that. some there was of course something of that. We were very conscious that the kind of language that we would use wouldn't be excluding language or we try very hard mm. and also that it would be language which people felt they could identify with and the reality of the situation was that abortion was the word nobody used it wasn't until 2017 I think that or was it 2016 that it was first used in a headline in the Irish Times it had not been used before abortion as abortion just abortion I think it was after the Citizens Assembly I'm not sure um, and that really if for example if I were to go to anywhere in Ireland, in Dublin as well, by the way. Dublin is great, but, you know, there are pockets. <laughs> uh, waving my banner and saying, I am pro-choice. I believe that every woman should have the right to make up her own mind, to make her own decision, to make her own choices. The people would turn off. People would say, oh, she is one of those radicals. So that, that is not what a referendum campaign is about. A referendum campaign needs to engage the people. So you go in and you you discuss and you talk and you converse on broad terms that everybody can actually contribute to. So, uh, you know, but Alvia was recognising that and that's what the three of you did and yes. bringing the organisations along. And, then and there all has the been criticism, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The other, of course, dimension of it, and then I'll, I'll stop actually, sorry, order was we had a job to do. And that job was to remove or to have the people remove the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution, when then the real work could start of making sure that women really could access abortion. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the things I was going to say about it is that in some ways, well, I, I do think there's the piece with hindsight, because when you look at yeah. the scale of the vote and then, you you know, so and it's also I mean, we've had this conversation even about the campaign, you know, when you look at the scale of the fundraising. So are there different things, you know, you might do? But but I do think that like what was happening around the country prior to that sort of final three weeks doesn't necessarily reflect the vote. I mean, you know, you mentioned Mullingar and um, Mm. because Mullingar, I I was down there as part, like in Mullingar as part of the tour and like they could, the group in Mullingar couldn't get a place to hold a meeting because no, none of the hotels, none of the venues and they finally got a place which was a little bit outside and and, and I mean, I remember that that one so well because there were so few chairs put out because they wanted the room to look full and then they had to go and get more chairs. And they so like there was all stuff, you know, going on like that where people were really it, it wasn't that sort of big phenomenal no. turnout they were getting. In fact, groups from Dublin went, went went down to support the canvassers. So, you know. And that was quite close yeah. to, to even the vote. Another thing so. that was interesting was, say, the whole uh, Claire Byrne horrible debacle that happened on TV and, and how that was almost, it, the way you describe it in the book, Alison, like this kind of crisis point for the campaign mm-hmm. where, in fact, when people were knocking on the doors, the Ferrari over that didn't hadn't really landed. Like, yeah. I think it was Sinead Kennedy was saying, she was down on doors yeah. and, you know, she wasn't hearing, oh God, I saw that on the telly and it changed their minds. Whereas for you in the campaign... It felt like that was a moment of one of these derailing almost moments. Well, I yeah, I think in a campaign... But that was genderised as well, I felt, yes, the response. Uh, yeah. Yes, no, I think it was. But I think in a campaign, you are... There is a tendency to be hyper-conscious of the media and particularly of the television debates. Um, but actually, we write it. We sort of did a correction really fast on that one and said, right... Um, 
that happened, we now move on to look at what we're doing. And in fact, I think that one of the, I mean, you know, one of what you're saying about groups or not being able to get places for meetings and the difficulties of canvassing and so on. I mean, the first few weeks of the campaign, we were embroiled in uh, discussions and, and fights going on in the media about the 12 weeks. And would, you know, to the point where you're actually beginning to look at it and say, oh, my God, we've been given a poison chalice here, which, of course, was not true. That was an absolute minimum that we wanted. Mm. Um, in fact, the Citizens' Assembly had recommended 14 weeks and we would like that, to, of course, to have gone much further. But still, but we were embroiled in that. It was very difficult on the doorsteps. It was very difficult in the media. I mean, people forget very quickly that you start a campaign and really nobody wants to talk to you. Politicians don't want to come near you. Um, mm. What are you and I remember I know. conversations that we but, had? But because, like, I mean, if, you know, looking back on it, I mean, the conversations that were had about would rape be a ground that now just seem utterly, you know, the fact ridiculous. that we were going absolutely ridiculous. You think about it, the and idea all of the time, those hoops after. And but all the time and, that went into that. I mean, we yeah. had a press conference around it as part of the campaign that you know that that should be ground. So yeah, I mean, I think in those. In that, in those sort of early, early days and and certainly early weeks That's before the, the final half three of the weeks, campaign, really. yeah, more, um, more. that was that was where uh, we were I'm, debating. I remember discussing with Orla and where she, she says it in the book that even in terms of the Clara Byrne debate and that uh, an over concentration on those sort of big set piece things, when in fact, um, as you said already, Roshin, different. It wasn't it wasn't really registering. The interesting thing for me watching that debate that night was I felt it did the other side more damage, actually. But it's if, because given my long period of observing politics and elections and all of that, I think it just was really interesting. And I think maybe this was the challenge for even people like myself who would observe politics and traditional politics and traditional ways of going about campaigns that it seemed like, you know, what are this crowd at? Even this whole hoo-ha about posters and posters not being being up being up in time. And it was like not not having faith that um this new and different way of doing it could could actually work and that these women had actually given some thought <laughs> to yes, their and, approach and, and their plan of campaign. There really wasn't any template for us. I mean, we strategized for a long time, but nobody else was doing mm. anywhere else, actually, what yeah. we were trying to do, which was, A, take the initiative. We were not defending something. We were fighting for something. And we were doing it very much on terms which kind of reflected the concerns of the electorate. So I do take your point, Orla, about, oh, of course you look back in hindsight and say, maybe we could have done this. But but at the time, and I'm speaking mm. very personally, I certainly felt a very strong responsibility not to lose this, that yeah. this was something we absolutely had to win and we were not going to take a risk with anything. This was mm. not at that stage about making some major ideological statement or radical yeah. statement. I mean... Every time I stood up, yeah. everybody knew exactly who I was. And I never made any secret of that mm. when asked. So it was there. But mm. the point was not to go out. In a, it, The point was to go out saying we need to look at this and yeah. we need to win it. So people forget that about a referendum campaign. And I think you're right, because that really captures, you know, one of the things 
you always throughout the campaign was the campaign was what we felt was at stake. Like, and we really felt it personally at every level. There was so much at stake here in terms of for women, for what it would mean if this was lost. Would we? When would we have this chance yes. again? And there yes. was that enormous piece for us. So, which was always there in terms of making any decision about the campaign. So I'd like to ask you then. I just feel my heart palpitating. I'm thinking back to it because <laughs> Sorry, it yeah. was a huge responsibility. Yeah. And we really, and in fact, yeah. the three, there being three of us and also not just three of us because each of our organisations, I mean, Sinead Kennedy from the Coalition, Silk and Sarah and everybody from mm. the National Women's Council, Sarah Monaghan from our, all there on our, our steering group and the IFPA as well. I mean, it, you were sort of feeling this huge responsibility. I mean, there were times when you'd get up in the morning, you'd think, oh, dear Jesus, God, I hope this is going to work. And there were you times know? when people would text you and say, could you not be doing this? Yeah, please that's do what that. I to get to because <laughs> even now, even up until the launch of the book, I mean, I was really, you know, it was, it was, I wasn't necessarily surprised, but even up to the launch of the book, there are people who feel that they were thrown under the bus is an expression that I've yeah, seen yeah. by the Together VS campaign because of the very, well, I can hear exactly what you wanted. You had a very clear strategy. You had a clear goal. You wanted to win. You had to make decisions. And in that, but, some I mean, people feel... winning at any price. No, no, so, I'm, but, I'm not saying that, but I'm just from, from some of the mm, criticism yeah. is that people felt left behind and left out of it. I mean, I was struck by Mara Clark tweeted at the launch of the book, um, repeal wasn't won, the campaign ended prematurely and leaving many behind. I'm too tired to celebrate book launches or take victory laps. Was this kind of an interesting sort of take on this sort of celebratory moment of, of looking at the, at the campaign and what, what it was done. There are people who feel that it was a, well, that some decisions weren't right. Does that sadden you? Does that, do you take that in or is it because you achieved the goal, you kind of know that there's going to be some disgruntled people and that's inevitable in any well, campaign? Well, it's always complex. And first of all, I mean, we didn't see the book as, as a celebration. It's rather, really, we felt that it was important to put down uh, for the record, because, of course, there are now, there was a kind of revisionism going on about the campaign as if we hadn't been involved at all. We felt it was important to say, this is the job that Together Fies does. That doesn't, did. That does not stand for the whole of the repeal movement, which was absolutely ginormous, but that we feel we have an obligation and a responsibility to put this down uh, for the record. Um, I think that certainly... Maybe it's not that surprising because I, repealing the Eighth Amendment was really important in itself, but it was only taking away the obstacle. It was not actually putting in yeah. place. It was mm -hmm. not actually all of the work. So I understand somebody like Mara, who does such incredible work um, with the Abortion Support Network over so many years, feeling that there's all this work still to be done. Absolutely. And I think each one of us feels that mm. very, very strongly. Um, it was removing that so we could actually get on with it. And in, the, in that process, it is true that there were many voices that were not heard, not sufficiently heard, felt they weren't heard, were not being in any sense deliberately excluded. But that certainly happens in a campaign. Mm. Would we do it differently next time round from that point of view? Perhaps, maybe, but I just simply hope there will never be. Orla, what do you think about <laughs> well, that? I mean, I, I people. I just, I just see another. It. I'm just going to read another tweet because uh, sure. somebody said it's heartbreaking to see so many voices being erased from the story about how repeal was won. Rural groups, the LGBT community, migrant groups, disability groups, and all these people 
are still affected by lack of access to abortion services are being written out of history. That was just one comment. Now I'm not saying there's okay. like a lot of people, but there are there is a yeah. feeling, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you you've heard yeah. it from yeah. people oh. to your face. I'm oh. sure. Yeah, I mean, usually I, on online. Actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think th- there's two things with that. I mean, yeah, w- one is I think yeah, absolutely what you've said, Alva. Like in terms of achieving reproductive rights for women in Ireland, this is a long, long campaign that's going to have many different parts to it. Repealing the eighth was a massive critical one within it, but it still is part, and that's why you know we're all back. To, you know, we are all back together looking at a number of different things in terms of reviewing the legislation, how we can capture women's experiences in this, and 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 actually you know, are working with all of those groups, but those groups as our members of the Women's Council, as members of the coalition, they're all in, in that space trying to do that. And so so this campaign is going to go on and it's going to go on for a long, long time. But just the other thing I think is important in terms of the book, and it was one of the things that I said at the launch, I'm just so conscious in the Women's Council and particularly, you know, over the last three or four years where we've been looking back at, you know, parts of history in Ireland and we're rewriting women into the history yeah. and, and saying, you know, trying to find out what did women do in those periods and, and writing about it. And historians are doing the same. And I think it's really important that, that we did write this book and that we did capture that moment in time in terms of what happened and put a narrative on it. So I think, you know, I think it, it was important to do of itself. But it's not in any way definitive of mm. everybody's experience. And as experience. Alva, you said at the launch that this is one story. This Absolutely. is the story of what, how, how it was there from your so perspective. And there are so many stories. stories. But Alison, you wanted to yeah, get in I there. Yeah, I do. I mean, look, abortion is a very emotive subject and there's an awful lot of hurt around it. It's going back over decades. Um, but speaking very personally now, this is my own view. If you even look back at the Protection of Life and Pregnancy Act, Pretty awful piece of legislation. But I remember thinking at the time, 2012, wasn't it 2013? You know, at least now we have abortion legislation on our statute books. This is a start. You know, I was thinking about it pragmatically. So, I mean, and I find it extraordinary that Alva and Orla are sitting here apologising that they got someone to write a book on the abortion referendum. It strikes me as very Irish, actually. And it also strikes me as very bloody Irish that it's like, you got it, you got it fantastically, you got like 60, what is it, 66.4% yes, and you still didn't get it, you know, get it the whole way. They were never going to get it the whole way. It didn't mean that people, you know, who are mentioned there with disabilities and, and all of that, that the issue wasn't, um, this happened, at, it was at the Citizens' Assembly, but subsequently voted down at the the Iraq this committee in terms of socioeconomic mm-hmm. of course that would have been i personally would have would have wished that but you have to if you're fighting a campaign and you're taking an approach that you're going to get as much as you can for an issue that has divided irish society so bitterly over so long you know you have to keep your head screwed on as well you know and be sensible about it i have to say you know i do i do understand very much where you know why those criticisms are there because it is still a deeply unequal society and mm. people who feel very critical are very angry and feel and not just feel excluded they are, there are is excluded. so much yeah. marginalization and mm. exclusion but it doesn't think, Alva, but, it doesn't but, sorry, stop i mean the next but, thing after that Alison, was the north that has now been sorted yeah, but, but so i it think moves the on. point is that because this was such really a historic kind of event that inevitably a lot gets put onto it. Um, 
So a lot of that resentment, and particularly for us as women and as lesbians and perhaps as women with disabilities or women who have come to, to live here in this country from elsewhere and so on and so forth. So I really do understand that. That's not to say that at times I don't feel a bit hurt. I don't, you know, my ego is not so disappeared that I don't feel it sometimes. Um, there was one tweet I saw, which actually I did cry uh, because you feel you can, and I think it's very personal really maybe, but why not? You know, there are times in this country, but I've felt it before where you say, why bother putting your head above the parapet? Because you can never get it right for everybody. All you can do is to say we have to go on fighting against the injustices and the exclusions like right now at this moment coming up to these by-elections. We know all of the nastiness that's there and it's part of our job as campaigners to fight against that all the time and to have a skin thick enough to say, I understand what you're saying, I stand corrected, I'm keeping going. Can we talk about some joyful moments like Killian <laughs> Murphy sending in the cake? Because <laughs> I love that bit. I love yeah, things yeah. like that. And Marion Keyes sending in the pizzas. Oh. And there was, I mean, I have to say on both sides, if you looked at it, there was a much more aesthetically mm-hmm. pleasing, just even the posters, the jumpers, the colour. I mean, I remember driving past Connolly Station day after day and, you know, I wasn't I'm saying I was feeling sorry for... Um, the anti-choice people that would be going a step too far <laughs> but every time there was such like an atmosphere buzz, with, with buzz, the Together yeah. for Yes campaigners versus the other and, and even who people who were beeping for them and even people stopping it was just you could feel it like in the air in the yes. run up like my children my daughters they were nine at the time were just going mom why are you worried about this this is so obvious <laughs> yeah. they could just yeah. see they're going well there's this and there's that surely they, it can't be a no you know um, it must have been there must have been moments like that where you just had it felt it and the tantalising Huge. joy that it was possible. Yeah. I mean, there was something amazing, I think, in the last week, seeing people with the badges and the mm. T-shirts and the jumpers and just people smiling, going down the, the street, like, because they'd see somebody else with the badge. But and, the oh, country, it was incredible. You know, going to yeah. small towns around yeah. Ireland, which really incredible. an awful lot of. And just the, the commitment and dedication and the collective energy of the people out canvassing. I mean, and and at that stage, it was a really hard thing for them to be doing and holding stalls, but they were so energised by it and so, so committed. I mean, to the point where, you know, when, when we won, I mean, Women and men, I think, were standing around saying, well, what are we going to do with ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. there was that sense that we were involved in a collective endeavour, that we were all mobilised mm. to fight for something which was good, which was about freedom, um, which was a good for everybody. But that, that's mentioned in, the, I think, it's the last chapter of the book. And, and, and you might ask Orla, she was interested on it. The, the whole thing about coming up to it the last couple of days and what would happen in Dublin Castle, uh, could it be quotes in, in quotation marks celebrated? And for anyone who was there, they realised that Alva Orlan Gráinne and various others were on the stage. You may even have been yes. yourself, rushing. And there was no sound system. You know. So, I mean, as, as Alva says, that there were nearly like flight uh, attendants or there were like people on a, on a runway sort of directing a... It was a mime for so it was it was wasn't... It was, it was, <laughs> I think it represented an awful lot more. It yeah. represented so much more for Irish women. It represented yeah. decades. If you remember in the middle of the campaign, the cervical check controversy was happening. Yet another controversy to do with where Irish women to do with below the belly button, yes. where Irish women... <laughs> 
got a really rough deal, you know. And I mean, Orla, you you mentioned that in the last well, chapter, yeah, what, just, what it stood for. I think, yeah, because it did. And I think it, it was a real sense. And I think part of that was that feeling that you were talking about, that the time for women has come. Yeah. And it was about so much about women's rights and there was a real I think that sense of you know wanting to really reject a past and how we treated women and also in being the past. accepted I think that was a big yeah. feeling like not just mm. women who'd had abortions just as a woman exactly just, yeah. uh, that, that it's a complex si- situation and the experiences that you have are not always predictable and it's messy and that was kind of felt like the yes was for that. Mm. It was an understanding of that well, experience. Olivia O'Leary said I thought very movingly in fact at the launch that really that that the day of, of, of the victory, she actually felt fully a citizen mm. of this country. That's and exactly I must say, I, I felt, felt that yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I was very, I remember being sort of a bit surprised and maybe a bit irritated, but also chuckling when um, on Taoiseach said this was a quiet revolution. And I think it just... <laughs> yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> but but yeah. it's anything but quiet. I think I know what he meant, but yeah. nonetheless. And then I thought, also silenced because the absence of sound in Dublin oh, yeah. Castle was a de facto, I mean, that's not on Taoiseach's decision, by no. the way, but it was a de facto silencing because why? They were afraid mm. that fights or something would break out. And that didn't happen for marriage equality. There was full sound. Mm. And it is quite true. We were all of us there doing this and wild was, kind of semaphore. And it was joyous and, all, and various, what I love, people yeah. handing out after eights. Yeah, yeah. After <laughs> eights. And chocolates. And, you know, I mean, it really, and then there's that episode where Gronia was asked to go on the 6-1 News yeah. uh, as, a, as a co-director. And when the, the, the result was announced, the first person they went to, it wasn't his fault, was Senator Aon O'Reardon. Yeah, but they and, did and, that the whole day. Yeah, and then that Gron and then Gronya was asked if she wanted to go out and debate against Corla Cora Sherlock after <laughs> it had all been won. Do you know yeah, what I mean? We, isn't there Are we paranoid? About no, I don't think so. I think they're all out to get us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I just think that goes back to that media and me, uh, polit- political bubble that we kind of exist yeah. in and I certainly found it in here a bit conversation I would mm. have conversations I would have that were so back in the way that we thought we were that yeah. we, the way we thought mm. we that thought about things and how difficult it was to break out of that even for people who could see something else beyond that you know and I still I find think it that hard. was exactly the thinking behind well we couldn't possibly celebrate women's reproductive yeah. rights you couldn't celebrate abortion yeah. so it, you had to be low key which was what ideally they wanted yeah. and but, but thankfully people took you can't over control the people in that absolutely <laughs> yeah. before you go I want to ask you about sacrifice because again reading the book what just the, the 24 hour nature of something like this really mm. comes through and you mentioned that you're old, Alva. You said it yourself. Um, but, you know, three different generations, the three women are different ages. Yeah. But but what was you had in common and all the teams, not just you guys, everybody working around the clock, Huge you know, team. unbelievable. Um, what toll did it take? I'd be interested to know on you, Alva. Ah, oh, that's a very good question. Well, I mean, physically, pretty tough I would say my body was a wreck for a long time still not quite recovered from it Mm. Um, emotionally it is very draining and very exhausting to run a campaign of of that kind isn't it absolutely it really is and it does take a long time to come back Um, and uh, and of course I mean the, the absolute joy and relief of winning is tremendous but you know, I mean, even now, for example, I'm aware of 
how how close it could have been. Mm. It wasn't, but it could have been. And I'm aware of I'm more aware now, I think, of the degree of responsibility that we assumed. And I'm not just talking about the three three of us women, but really everybody mm. who was really involved in that campaign. Um, well, that's I, why I think the title "It's a Yes" was never the yes was never assumed. That's why when those yeah, uh, exit yeah. polls came in yeah. the yeah. night before from the Irish yeah. Times True. and then RTE, but it does take yeah. its yeah. toll. Certainly, yeah. it really does. And somebody said to me recently, "What big issue are you working on now?" And I said, oh, "No more big issues. I want to go <laughs> back and, you know, just be doing the bread and butter things that we have to keep on fighting for because really working for something really, really, really big over a long period mm. of time." Um, it depletes your personal resources and your family and personal life. Uh, for me, for four or five years was yeah. just a kind of... Uh, and n- indeed, really, for your whole life, I think it's your life's work it, to some degree. Oh, well, it no, felt I like have that. had a life doing other things as no, well. No, I know, but I'm just saying you have been <laughs> banging this drum Well, for I think, though, the four or five years, time. I mean, so for several years, family life, mm. or, I mean, you... you for me. You, I mean, yeah. you had... Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, I suppose the, the toll bit came in two ways because... Like in my role as the director of the Women's Council, there was a whole organisation that, that had to keep going. And I was just really conscious of what people were doing in making sure it was going. And, and then me being, you know, really, you know, all the time, obviously on the campaign. So I think that that was difficult um, because I just knew how much people were giving right across the board mm. in terms of the campaign. And then, yeah, personally having a son who's nine and being a lone parent really? and just... Yeah, I think I think it did take a toll on us. It was a difficult it was a difficult year, but at the same time as well and I say it in the book, I mean people around the country were amazing because they knew that I was bringing my son to lots yeah. of places. Um and yeah, they were so supportive and so kind and that was a beautiful experience as mm. well as it taking a toll. Yeah. But there were lots of promises of lots of bribery. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I lots a hamster. Of trips to we had a repeal hamster. That's well, what I had to do. I promised it just a died dog. the other day. <laughs> I promised a dog that I still haven't delivered <gasps> on yet, but it has Shocking. to be done. I know. Uh, but bribes yeah. were big. Weren't bribes they? were definitely big. Um, listen, you, you say there's no more big issues that you can have the capacity to do, but I mean, there's exclusion <laughs> zones, there's Absolutely, various things yeah. to do with oh, this oh, legislation yes. that oh, yeah. we need to keep. We yeah, are. and as I said, the, I mean, the work goes on. The work yeah. goes on for the Women's Council in terms of women's reproductive rights and it will continue to. But yeah, I mean, there are critical pieces absolutely about exclusion zones around decriminalisation um, and also is the piece around women's experiences and the fact that some women are continuing to travel. Yeah, and, and the real access and, you know, there are, there are financial aspects to that so that while the abortion service itself is free, actually mm. being able to get to it by bus or train or whatever, you know, there are so many issues. But we all, we were very conscious, I think all of us are very conscious of that and we said it all along that the, the hard work, in a way, the hard nitty gritty work of trying to get that legislation in place, trying to get the services in place and working for women. And we do have a review of that law coming up in less than two years now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, which needs a lot, it's going to need a lot of work. Um, just one final point on that. I think one of the less tangible things that we need to do is the stigma busting, because I think despite the fact that it's now legal and that, you know, we know that the services are there, I still feel and I experience it that abortion is still a dirty word mm-hmm. and abortion is still something that it's not really quite polite to talk about. And I hope that changes too. And I think that will, as time goes on, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's 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 a, still a, a very big barrier that I think we have to 
I think, work on. I think it absolutely is. And that is why those things like exclusion zones are actually so important because the stigma is there that hasn't gone away. Mm. But I do think the fact that it is part of our public health service ha- yeah. has really helped that in terms of integrating it and making it a normal part of women's health. Mm. Well, can I just say practical things like that three day cooling off period, which is insulting, absolutely, uh, Mm. as well as practically very difficult. So uh, I don't think none of us have given up. I mean, we're still working on the issue, of course. I just want to say well done, Alison, for putting it together and and making telling weaving this very disparate story with so many different elements. It's a brilliant book. It's gripping read for anyone with any interest in it because it puts it all together. And as you say, a handbook for people who, you know, people in Poland, people in Malta, all over the world who who are trying to fight this fight that you so successfully did and I just want to thank you as well for all your work and commitment and the sacrifice which you've talked about to all of you you know thank and you, there's Roshi. so many people yeah. not just the three of you at the top of Absolutely. it you know um, and yeah so well done and I'd urge everyone to read it's thank a you, yes thank, thank you Roshi. and that's it for today thank you so much to our guests Alva Smith Orla O'Connor and Alison O'Connor and remember the book is called It's a Yes and I think it would make a wonderful Christmas present for anyone involved in the movement or anyone who just is interested in how these incredible campaigns are put together and the challenges, because obviously in every campaign like this, there were challenges. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 